Welcome to episode 7 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my inventive co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of having Edward Ford on the show, father of the shape Oko, and all-around cool guy. Mr. Ford, welcome aboard. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this, guys. Hey, Ed. Glad you're here. So... I'm pretty sure most people will know who you are, but for the the, the couple people who live under a rock, uh, you care to give us a quick history of your background and uh, what Shapeoko is, just to sort of fill in the blanks for people who might not know? Yeah, I'll give you the super condensed version. So I designed a desktop CNC machine in 2011, uh, released it on Kickstarter, hoped to sell like maybe five of them. So I had a couple of friends to talk CNC with uh, and... I've been selling them ever since. 2012, were things kind of different back then? Because I know the digital fabrication community has sort of been ramping up since then. Like 3D printers used to be like very hackerish. Like you had to really know what you were doing to make them. And now you can like buy them in any store. So what have been some of the trends that you've seen like going from back then to where we are today? So I think the biggest thing is availability. Like the reason that I even designed a machine was because I couldn't buy one. I should correct that. I couldn't buy one with my budget. Uh, they just didn't make machines in the, you know, sort of thousand dollar range. So yeah, what is it? Invention is the something of something. I don't know what the saying is. Necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity. Yeah. So that's exactly what it was. And now, uh, yeah, there are dozens of CNC vendors. Um, pretty much every price point is covered. Uh, the opportunity to put desktop fabrication in your garage or in your office, it's easy now. Uh, and yeah, back in 2011, you pretty much had to build your own. I know the, the machine is seeing like great success among uh, makers and, and hobby type folks like uh, Winston and I, but I, I see a lot of use of it in commercial settings too, more than most of the uh, desktop class machines. Um, was that always kind of part of your vision for the machine or was that a bit of a surprise for you to see it used in a commercial setting, manufacturing setting? So it wasn't part of my original plan at all, um, like way back to 2011, but definitely designing Shapeoko 3, um, when that revision was coming around or redesign was coming around. Yeah, I was thinking that there are a lot of use cases, single op jobs that it could fit in for. So yeah, I'm... I'm not surprised to see it in industrial settings, but it it still makes me happy when I do. Yeah, it's like a livelihood in a box. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. So for those of you who don't follow my social media, um, Edward Ford and I were at IMTS, which is the International Manufacturing Technology Show. And uh, so we had a bit of fun just walking around. Um, Ed, did you find anything that you were like really interested in or were you shopping for anything? What was sort of your motivation behind going to the show this year? So I've been going to that show for a long time, and I usually go just to see what's new. Uh, big industrial equipment that I don't really have a need for, but I like to look at. It's relatively close to home, so it's an easy show to visit. Uh, but this year, yeah, this year was different. I was looking for really products for my production environment, specifically finishing and cutting, I guess some deburring. But I think my favorite thing that I saw, uh, favorite thing that I think that I'll probably buy is 
a, a relatively low cost tapping arm, which I have a tapping arm now uh, and I love it. It's done probably not a million holes, but it's done a lot of holes, but I don't have a spare and I was looking around at some of the other options and I, I found a, I found a pretty good one. Um, I'm trying to get him to send me an invoice so I can pay him for it, but I'm pretty excited about it. I sort of just watched you shopping around and it's interesting seeing someone coming from your end, like the, the entrepreneur, the manufacturing side, whereas I'm sort of in my garage sticking, uh, taps in like, uh, electric drills, um, and just trying to, to get straight holes. The, the vibratory tumbler was also another one that when I saw it, I was like, I really need to get one. Um, when we were walking around, uh, I went to one of the booths, they were handing out like sort of like drink coaster sized aluminum pucks and, uh, it had a nice machine finish and I sort of just walked by one of the, uh, finishing booths and just tossed the piece in the tumbler for a couple minutes and came back and fished it out. And I was like, this is fantastic. It, it, um, really would have helped in the recent project that I released the, uh, rock climbing tool. Um, cause I, I bead blasted that by hand and it's a really slow process and, to be able to just throw it in a, a tub of uh, abrasive would be really nice. Yeah, the the tumblers, they give a really great finish from a uh, how much work you have to put in to what sort of finish you get out. Like if you think of it as an exchange, you know, time for finish. With a tumbler, it takes, I don't know, a second to throw your part in and then maybe five seconds to fish it back out later. So it's pretty low energy, but the finish is reliable and consistent. So... Yeah, they're great. I can never get enough of, I don't know, I could totally nerd out on any of that stuff. Yeah, I've got Tumblr on my uh, wish list for next year. So uh, so you've been going for a while. Have you noticed any kind of change at IMTS? Is this uh, Instamachinist phenomena kind of catches on? Is it having an impact there? Because it was always, you know, traditionally trade show for corporate manufacturing buyers, right, to buy large equipment make their big capital purchases for the year. But it seems like vendors are opening up a little bit more, maybe showing a little more of, uh, or allowing a little more recording and stuff like that. Have you noticed any change in the show over the years as, as uh, social media? Not really. I mean, I, I understand what, what you're asking, and it probably has changed to some degree, but I haven't noticed, uh, I haven't noticed a dramatic change. Everything from, you know, uh, the smallest vendor to the largest vendor, seems to stay pretty consistent year to year. Um, I was trying to think of the the first time I went to that show, and I think it was like 2002. I've been going for quite a long time, and it always sort of feels the same. It's about the same size. I guess that there might be more software than there used to be, but as far as the like, you know, big machine tools go, it feels pretty consistent. Were there any uh, machines or trends that you saw this year that really made an impression on you? Not that I can think of. Winston, did you see anything that was just like sort of blow you away? I didn't even know that existed. In in the sense of like a recent development, I wasn't really surprised. Like all the technologies that were there, like you expect, all right, five axis is getting more and more available. It's becoming uh, more approachable because like the software is getting better. So in that sense, I wasn't surprised by the technologies that were there, but there are machines that I just, I haven't touched before, right? Like I, I stood right next to like the current machines, which are like a million bucks. And um, that, that Sugami laser lathe thing that was cutting um, steel tubing, a uh, really small thing, like about the size of a matchstick. And it was putting these, um, I think it's 0.04 millimeter kerf 
laser scores in it. And it was just the amount of precision that you can get out of a laser I did not know you could do. And so just sort of seeing what the, the cutting edge was was kind of cool. Was that the Swiss style lathe? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, those are those are magical to watch. It was a it was a lathe slash laser. I think basically designed for the medical industry. That's how they make stints. And yeah, the part that they were cutting at the show was super intricate. It was it was impressive. And Winston, I wanted to ask you, did you get a chance to see the uh, Kern machine while you were there from our, our last guest? Not while it was running. I, I did get up close to it, and it is, uh, it, it's hard to tell just like from a glance, right, what's, what's special about it, because you can't really see precision from the outside. But you can still appreciate the quality, the finish, like the fact that it's got like a, a big um, like uh, tool cabinet, it's got all the, the power condition to go in, the uh, climate control, like all those systems are there. So, I mean, I can appreciate it, but sort of like going to a car show where just from the outside, you don't quite know what's under the hood. It looks cool, probably performs great. Um, but un- unless you really know the story behind the machines and the companies, it's harder to get that deeper level of appreciation. And so that's why I'm glad we had that uh, interview with Marv. Yeah, he was great. Hey, Ed, I wanted to ask you, um, so I know we kind of asked your personal uh, observation on the show. Uh, did you see anything that you would think would be kind of strategically relevant as a company owner in a manufacturing business? In particular, I'm kind of wondering what your take was on all the additive manufacturing you saw going on there. you think that has a role in, in a company like uh, Carbide 3D? No. As far as like 3D printers go or any of the additive like the the weld the welding additive yeah i was thinking the the build it up with additive and then machine it kind of on the same machine like the renishaw i think had a machine that does that i saw a couple of them um i'm trying to remember the first time i saw that maybe it was four years ago the first time that i saw and i think it was actually a robot arm that was welding up you know building up like a printer would um and talking to the guy he was saying oh yeah you could take this to a machine afterwards and finish machine it um, I, I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, it seems like it's still in its infancy. I've never really seen it in production. Um, but it feels like a good way to prototype something that you might cast and then post machine. But yeah, I, I don't know how uh, popular is not the right word, but you know, I, I don't know how accepted it is in the industry to use that method as opposed to just, you know, getting a cast made and going for it. I guess the special sauce is if you have a lot of internal features that just would be very difficult to machine and, and not necessarily in a material that you could cast supposedly is the answer, right? Yeah. I, I think the other bonus is, and I don't know the specs on this, um, Winston, you might, or Ed, you might. So if you do um, a buildup with weld uh, strength wise, I think that it's equivalent to a really high strength steel. Like, I I don't know if it would be like HD 400 or what the comparable spec would be. Uh, So the interesting part is that you could, you know, you could build it up with a welder, finish machine it, and then have a really uh, durable part afterwards. It it wouldn't be, you know, like FDM 3D printer part. Yeah. I mean, you'd probably still have to do a little uh, heat treating afterwards, um, but uh, Autodesk had a couple examples at their booth, and the one thing that um, Richard and I, uh, JPL Richard, the the Instagram 
machining curmudgeon, we noticed that there were a lot of voids in the material. Um, just because you, you can't always control splatter and lay down a consistent like bead thickness. So um, th you have to like, if you really want like a flawless part, like they, they were showing off ship propellers, um, you really don't want any any pits or holes where you might get cavitation. So Porosity. Yeah, yeah. So um, in cases where you need that material to be super consistent, it, it might not be the best application. And I think it's having the right application that makes that process worthwhile. And I'm not sure if you have anything like that. I don't think so. Ed's shaking his head. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I don't have anything like that. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed I couldn't make it this year. I've, I've never been. I would love to see it just kind of as a eye candy experience, not bringing a checkbook this year, but maybe someday. I too was disappointed you couldn't make it, Ed. I actually thought that you were going to be there up until maybe the week before. And then I think Winston told me you weren't coming. I thought, oh, that's, that's a bummer. Yeah, I ran into some uh, conflicts with some project stuff that was going on in the day job, but uh, I will be there in 2020 for sure. Day jobs are... Day jobs are such a time suck. They get in the way of everything. But they do pay for the uh, the hobby, so that's always good. That's true. Hopefully I'll be going to Emo next year. So I may have an opportunity to go to Hanover. And, and I know that one's a really big show. I'm probably going to, maybe if I see a third of it, I'd be really lucky. That's what I understand. Like You can't see it all at once, like Disney World. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. You've got a pretty nice setup at home, uh, workshop and everything. Are you doing anything interesting in there right now? Actually, well, I have the space for a really nice workshop at home. Uh, I have a two-car attached garage, which my wife parks in and I park in. And then I have a two-car detached garage that's like sort of closer to the road. Um, and then there's a storage shed connected to like the back of it. So... Part of the reason when we moved into this house like a year ago was for that that building. Like, oh, I can finally have my own shop. They don't have to share with uh, my wife's car, basically. Um, the problem is I got stuck in like a, I call these ed loops, where like you, you get caught up on a on some sort of hurdle and then you, you can't get over it until you solve the hurdle. And this was a dumb one, but it was the, the cabinets. I kept thinking that I would have to, well, not that I had to, but I wanted to make the base cabinets for the shop. And I think that there were like, I don't know, eight or 10 of them. And I, I got stuck in this loop like, well, do I bring my table saw home? Like, how, how do you make cabinets without a shop was basically what happened. And I have a shop uh, like at my office that, that I, I was like, well, I guess I could make them there and then take them home. It would be so much easier to make them at home. Anyway, this has gone on for quite a while. And then I just decided like three weeks ago, like, just buy the cabinet side. Not a big deal. Uh, as far as cost goes, I don't know, buying an unfinished cabinet and making a cabinet, probably about the same cost at the end of the day. So I'm looking forward to actually getting the cabinets put in and building the shop out and having a place at home uh, that I can go escape to after the kids go to bed. Do you tend to do uh, or favor woodworking over metal or just kind of? all kinds of materials you like to work with? Um, I'd say all kinds of material. I think the thing I, it, it almost always ends up being plastic. Like I, I probably prefer HDPE over everything because of the machinability, durability. Uh, you don't really have to finish it. So yeah, mostly plastic. 
and uh, there's there's little dust. I do quite a bit in uh, Delrun and HGPE here too. It's uh, anytime I miss the snow. <laughs> How about you, Winston? Anything uh, you want to talk about going on or that you finished up recently? I'm just awkwardly in between projects. Um, I'm trying to, like, between IMTS, between Maker Fair, between my, my friend's wedding in two weeks, I've just got so many things going on, and I, I'm losing all my weekends, so I'm I'm stuck fitting in prototyping time uh, after work, and it's just, it's really not working out for me. Um, but I am looking to do some uh, 3D carving of, like, topographic maps, uh, took some inspiration from uh, Elevated Woodworking on Instagram. And uh, so I've got a project like that coming out. Um, I still haven't made an American flag, which I think is is sort of a go-to project that a lot of people do. Um, and I want to do it in a different way. Because a lot of people, they will stain it and then they'll like V-carve the, uh, the stars into the union. And uh, I want to do it in such a way that it's flat. Um, so I want to actually... Um, sort of inlay the stars and I don't also I don't want to do a shallow inlay I want to make it all the way through so that when you look at it from the other side um, if you want to hang it in one orientation or another it's the same on both sides the other reason for doing that is if I want to 3d carve the flag to make it look like it's waving I can do that and the stars are still there throughout the thickness of the material I, I have a really long reach small end mill I think it's just under a sixteenth of an inch, um, has over three quarter, three quarters of an inch of reach, and so I'm going to use that to cut out the pockets for the stars, and uh, we'll see how that goes. That's hopefully going to be early October. I like that idea, Winston. It sounds like a pretty cool project. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have thought to put the stars in first, but I see what you're saying. If you basically assemble the thing flat, put it back in the machine, then... Yeah, you could do whatever you wanted to the top and the stars would never go away. Yeah, and you can't stain the the, the blue portion or the red portion like with everything in place, otherwise the, the stain will bleed. So you have to be able to sort of just um, pop in the, the stars at the very end, just before finish or sanding, um, in order to preserve that, that contrast. So it, it's just a, sort of a design experiment, an idea I came up with, but uh, we'll see where it goes. What about you, Eddie? What are you working on? Oh, it's been a busy week this week. I, um, a couple of things that you've probably seen, I've been working on, uh, fixturing for the, uh, pocket NC. I kind of I put some stuff on Instagram, a little tombstone design, four-sided tombstone, uh, with four vices on it. You can do some more work with that and also create a version of it. That's, uh, really more for like custom fixturing with some mighty, mighty bike clamps on it for some upcoming work. And then I'm starting to work on the, uh, design of that i have this modular vice design we talked about i think on an earlier episode for the shape hoko with the aluminum table so uh, i actually have a some parts i want to make on there that require flipping it's basically a three three-sided setup so i gotta do the top and then left side and right side so i need a good repeatable way to hold that work it's actually uh housing for an arduino i'm sorry for a raspberry pi that i'm working on in aluminum for another project so hopefully i'll uh be able to get the vice done first and then actually start building the parts. It's kind of like your cabinet said. <laughs> Chicken and egg. It's it's tough because I need a low profile, you know, really low profile uh, work holding solution for the, because the, the part's pretty tall and pretty deep. So uh, see what else I got going. I have some 
some commercial work that I'll start next week when I get back from my trip and uh, can't really talk too much about it, but it's going to be uh, probably keeping me off Instagram for a few days before I can start my fun stuff again. That's pretty much all I got going on. So your, your Raspberry Pi enclosure, you said it's three-sided? Oh, because of the ports. Yeah, ports and some louvers for cooling. And then um, ah. it's actually, I guess, technically four-sided because I have to do the deep pocket. I actually haven't decided if I'm going to keep it one piece and do a deep pocket for the interior or just split it in you know, like a split case, which is probably where I'm going to go a lot easier to machine and then just put the two pieces together with some small screws, you know, like an upper and lower clamshell. Yeah, that would be easier. And then actually it would just be single op, right? Like do them both from the top and not have to worry about flipping. Yeah. Assuming all the ports line up with the seam, that would, that would definitely work. Yeah. I think that's all I did. Oh, I did, uh, I did some work last week on, um, some more stainless steel work to do some lanyard beads for uh, some of the cool flashlights I have here from uh, Freelux. So that was kind of a fun project. I, I haven't done a lot in stainless steel. It's really my second project in stainless, and uh, I'm actually coming to really like that material. I was hurt, you know, I heard it was really tough, but so far I've been really lucky with it, especially with no coolant. I watch. I was watching Vince do some or Vince Fab do some 1018 on the Shape Oko. I don't know if you saw that, Ed. He's getting some pretty good. No, I didn't. Oh yeah, he's doing some crazy good stuff now. He's he still does you know a lot of aluminum work for. Uh, he's kind of a speed shop, I guess, right? But he's doing uh, yeah. He's doing some automotive parts out of uh, ten eighteen, and that's actually came out pretty well. That might be a good reason to get you back on Instagram, Ed. <laughs> well, I still check Instagram. Uh, I guess just not as thoroughly as I used to. Yeah, he's he's tearing it up on that machine, man. That's awesome. Uh, what else was I going to ask you guys? So yeah, Winston, sounds like you're, you've got plans for Maker Faire. That's New York City Maker Faire, right? Yeah, uh, New York. I'm going in on Friday, uh, crashing at a friend's place, and just so that I can attend both days because the, the lineup of speakers is fantastic this year. Um, they started it with Bay Area with the DIY content creator stage, and uh, they're, they're keeping that going, and they're just bringing in some really top-notch talent. Um, Alex French Guy Cooking, um, uh, Laura Kampf, Bob Claggett, like all the big names uh, from like a, a bunch of different uh, areas of making. Um, I think uh, Backyard Scientist is going to be there. So it's it's a pretty diverse group of, of makers. It's not just like builders or fabricators. Um, they actually cover a good good portion of STEM. So I'm pretty excited for that. How about you, Ed? Are you going to that? I'm not. I went, was that last year, Winston, or two years ago? I missed last year. I missed last year, too. So, yeah, it was, I went two years ago. Um, yeah, it's a nice show. It's not nearly as big as Bay Area, but it's in a cool spot, and yeah, I had a good time. I should probably go back again. And Winston, I know you spoke at Bay Area. Are you speaking at this one or just uh, attending? I am not. So I actually had no idea how the the speaker thing worked. I thought you had to be invited to, to speak. And uh, when I was chatting with uh, another one of the people who spoke last year um, or earlier this year, uh, she told me that she got in just by applying. Um, you can apply to be a speaker just like you can apply to be an exhibitor. And so she sort of put together a pitch and threw it out there and got accepted. Uh, but she had no idea that there was an invite system. So we both came at this from completely different directions 
And so this year I didn't get an invite. And uh, she was like, yeah, why don't we just put together like a really quick pitch and see if it goes through? It didn't work. But at least now I know the, the general process. Um, but maybe next year. Um, it, it's sort of good that they didn't ask me this year just because I've got so much going on. I couldn't possibly prepare for it. And I kind of like the, the panel uh, setup just because it takes the pressure off you to keep talking for an hour. Um, so finding the right group of people to do that with um, is also kind of critical. So I got to keep an eye out of people who I might want to speak with and uh, get a pitch ready for uh, Bay Area 2019. How about Ed? Are you going to be uh, any form where our listeners could potentially meet you face-to-face anytime soon? I will be in Atlanta, I think, uh, October 5th through the 9th. There's a conference, like a STEM conference there. I think it's called Construct3D. We have a booth and... Um, I'm actually giving a presentation with Josh Stumpenhorse, who's the brother of Kyle Stumpenhorse, who's on the podcast that I do. Um, Josh is a is a pretty popular teacher, um, and he's super into STEM. Uh, so he's actually going to do a presentation with me using CNC in the classroom. Uh, I think we've got like an hour and a half slot. So it's going to be a long one, but I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be pretty exciting. And then in... November. Oh, I'll be at, at AU uh, with you guys. Yeah, I'll be there. And, and for our listeners, the the one or two that may have not heard about it, uh, the podcast Ed's talking about is If You Build It podcast with Mikey the Maker and Kyle Stumpenhorse. Yeah, that's it. I think that we're, I think we're recording episode thirty tonight, which is a, a lot of episodes. I, I don't know where the time went. To also just go back really quickly, AU, for those of you who don't know, you must live under a ginormous rock that is Autodesk University. They accept speaker proposals, too. That's a great way to uh, share your Fusion 360 knowledge or anything else you might want to share in front of a, a pretty large receptive maker audience and professional engineers. At this stage in the game, I'm really just there to learn because there's so much that I don't know. I haven't even touched Power Mill or like any other, other Autodesk products. Um, I'm sort of just really focusing on the the hobby grade stuff for now. You use Inventor, right? I used Inventor um, during a rotation at my work. Um, So I work in Lakehurst, and that naval base, we pretty much use Creo, which is horrible. Um, And the base down in Orlando, where I went for a couple months, They uh, looked at all the products that were out there and settled on Inventor without really any formal training. I I picked it up really easily because the fundamentals are all the same, but I ended up liking it a lot more, except for its sort of weird uh, navigation scheme, like the middle mouse button does what I think it should. Um, I I like the SolidWorks convention a little more. Yeah, Inventor is the only thing I think I've I've used Pro-E and SolidWorks. Um, I can get around in them, but... Yeah, Inventor's like my my go-to. So at AU, yeah, if I'll be anywhere other than our booth, it'll probably be around Inventor stuff. So Ed, you were out on the West Coast recently. Was that anything interesting going on there? Or was that? Oh yeah. Um, no, I went out to Torrance where the where the Carbide three D. I call it Carbide three D West, but it's really like Carbide three D headquarters um, are in Torrance, California, just south of LA. Um, I try to get out there every once in a while. Um, we work pretty well away from each other, but it, it's nice to be 
you know, in the same room as uh, Rob and George. So yeah, we had some design ideas to talk about and uh, I hadn't seen the arm yet. And the robot arm. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The universal robotics. I think it's a U is it a U 10. Not sure. Yeah. I think it's a 10. So we basically have it tending, uh, tending one of the, the milling machines right now. So it's loading and unloading parts, which is kind of hilarious to watch. Uh, so yeah, I went out for that. And then my brother lives in San Francisco. So I was in Torrance all week. And then Friday I flew up, um, my brother and his wife just had their first kid. So I flew up to meet my nephew and hang out with them for a couple of days and then flew home. And then I was home for two days. And then I went to Chicago to meet up with Winston and JPL. Uh, I got back Friday and it felt like I'd been gone for a month. Um, so yeah, that, that was good. What else did we have out in Torrance? I think that was it. Uh, we, we picked up another industrial milling machine, a brother, I think it's a S 1000 or S 1100. Again, I don't know the number. Um, so I hadn't seen that either. And that's actually the one that the robot is tending. So yeah, it was good to be out there. Yeah. It's good to know that the carbide 3ds, you know, basically sounds like either shelf sufficient or using local, local manufacturing for the most part. So we talk about that a lot on, on the previous podcast. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah, they're all domestic manufacturers. If we're talking about turning parts or steel or any of that stuff, they're they're all in the in the U.S. Um, interesting, uh, or this might be interesting, I guess, to your listeners. I had drawn up a new part today that was part of a, a smallish assembly, and before I went any further on the design, I thought, oh man, I better get this quoted, um, you know, just to make sure that I'm not going to like price myself out of the game here. So I shot it over to one of the vendors and they came back like an hour later with this price that was like three times higher than I thought it should be for no reason other than I just thought it was going to be like a $3 part and it was like nine fifty or something. So I reached out to one of my other vendors who, who doesn't do this kind of work typically. Um, but I just said, Hey, if, uh, if you know anybody, you know, in your arsenal that, that can do this, you know, shoot me a quote. And he got a quote back to me like probably an hour later and it was much closer to what I was estimating than the first quote was. So anyway, the takeaway from that was if you have a relationship with a vendor or a relationship with, this is actually a sales guy that I reached out to. Uh, he sells for another company. Um, yeah, I feel like he hooked me up with a brand new vendor. That's like sort of instantly vetted because I trust him and he's passing their name along. Yeah, it was a, I don't know. It was a good day. Uh, design wise and quoting wise how about you Winston any last uh thoughts and then we'll get Ed's and then we're probably gonna wrap up a little early this time which works out pretty good since Ed's got a second podcast to do <laughs> tonight uh, and I don't want to circle back too far but um you were talking about work holding and that was one of the things I was keeping an eye out at keeping an eye out for at IMTS um just because holding parts in the pocket NC is really tough in a low profile fashion especially if they don't fit in the vise or if they don't fit in the ER40 collet. But also on the Shapeoko, because I saw that Vince Fab, he's like starting to use Mighty Bites for just clamping down massive pieces of aluminum. So I was looking for ideas to sort of just work hold odd shapes. Definitely an ongoing struggle adventure, but I think I've got some ideas to run with also in the work holding arena. So that might be an upcoming project. I was going to say, we looked at a ton of work holding, Winston. I feel like Maybe half of the second day was just us, 
I don't know. I feel like we stopped at every work holding booth that we ran across. Yeah. What, different kinds of clamps, different kinds of vices, dovetails, yeah. and just the whole gamut. Um, some of it's a little tougher to implement on a hobby machine than others, but definitely gave a lot of good ideas. I actually reached out to one of the one of the booths we stopped at. I reached out to them to see if I could become a distributor. And they they replied back right away, like within an hour. Um, and they were basically like, no. Really? Yeah. They're, they're like, we're, we're, we're looking for distributors who are doing industrial work holding. I can give you a list of distributors in your area if you'd like. And I replied back and said, I'm looking for industrial work holding. My customers are looking for industrial work holding. And they came back and said, no. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Which I was kind of bummed out about. I was actually uh, sort of excited to get a couple in and try them out, but I'll find something else. Yeah. Cause I mean, is, you know, kind of a hobby maker slowly transitioning into trying to do things more like it's done in the manufacturing world as far as what I, but I machine on my, or how I machine on my machines, um, I always thought it would be kind of in everyone's best interest to see more out of the box work holding solutions that are sold by the, the machine manufacturers. I know, um, you know, Carbide 3D has the vice and the flip jig, which are great. I've used those a lot. Um, but there seems like there's quite a bit of uh, opportunity there, right, to, to kind of fill out a nice accessory line. I, I always get ideas when I see IMTS. As a matter of fact, that's where that that tombstone vice or the tombstone uh, for the PNC came from. I saw a couple of things on other Insta Machinist feeds from IMTS this year. And I think someone was showing Jay Pearson, uh, Pearson Work Holdings Roto Vice. And that's like, okay, I'll stop the, the vice is on there. That's a great idea. And, uh, you know, it's like one third the size of his probably, or if that big, but, uh, but yeah, you get a lot of inspiration. There's so much creative work holding going on out there, but not everybody that uses these machines kind of, follows the, the the IMTS and kind of what goes on in the in the formal manufacturing world. So they may not see a lot of these ideas. I think it would be more helpful as a budding machinist um, if I had a bigger catalog to select from when I was picking out my machine. And I'm not just talking about carbide, just kind of all the machines out there. Yeah, work, work holding work holding's hard on smaller machines. Um, sounds ridiculous. But yeah, if you've got a huge, you know, I don't know if you worry or... Uh, Amada or whatever work holding that's a known thing right throw a vice in there or throw a fixture plate in yeah I think that's the issue you know the challenge is the, the machines are small especially in Z um, so they kind of almost needed specialty or scaled down versions of traditional work holding but the techniques and the and the approaches still work right they're still valid even on the smaller um, the lower profile of these machines so I'm starting to kind of figure that out that you can figure out how some of this stuff works and build it yourself. And it's, it's viable, right? It's like, instead of having to solve the problem again, just see what's working for other, other machinists out there and try it. Been, been having some success with that. I, I think the other thing with work holding is, uh, you know, if you go to like an actual production environment, um, where it's a company that has a product line, the way they treat work holding is completely different than if you go to, like sort of a job shop, right? A job shop would be more akin to how, you know, a hobby machinist would look at work holding because at a job shop, they've got to, they've got to change their setup. They've, they're loading different parts all the time. Um, we're in like a true production environment. It's almost always a vice or it's a, it's a specialty plate that'll hold 50 parts with, you know, pit bull clamps or, um, you know, some sort of side holding. 
but in production, like no, nobody's messing around with, uh, you know, like these sort of one-off fixtures. It's like that, you know, they make a fixture that's going to run 24 hours a day for, you know, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. How often do you guys have to change your setup at a carbide 3d West? Kind of depends what's going on every couple of days, probably per machine. Um, depends on the batch size and the drain stuff. Um, pretty often though, there's three milling machines and then the Doosan lathe. Um, the three milling machines are responsible for all of the parts that we manufacture. So ends up being every couple of days. I, for one, just, I'm really glad you got, you added the, uh, modular aluminum table for the shape go because that fits right in with the kind of work holding I like to use here, especially for metal work. Perfect. Yeah. Those pit bull clamps are like, I, I can't wait to get a set of them to try them on that aluminum table. Winston and I saw them in a couple of different places at IMTS. And it's like, I don't know, the best of all worlds. You get hold down both side load and vertical. Super low profile. Their holding potential is way more than the machine could ever out. So probably pretty reliable. Yeah, I think they're recording like 12,000 pounds of like clamping force or something. Something yeah. crazy. Yeah, that was with like a, a five millimeter screw through it too. Crazy. That's the those are the same ones that uh, I think I saw those or Winston, you were telling me about the ones that uh, Titan used to make that huge lion that was there, lion head. Yeah, I, I got to touch it. It was really cool. And you can see the fixture and it like the fact that he clamped down on it on more than one plane is a pretty cool idea. Overkill for anything we're doing, but just that idea of machining a pocket to receive your stock and then putting clamps around that opens up a lot of possibilities for like if I want to machine like a three by three inch block of wood I can just throw that in uh, like machine a pocket in some MDF put some threaded inserts in there and just put clamps that are specifically tailored for that application um, so there's a lot of custom work holding opportunities with just simple little clamps that you can stick anywhere I actually did that um, back in December, I was making, actually these pictures are on Instagram. I was making a case to put a present in. It was like this um, keychain thing, lanyard. And I did exactly that. Just, yeah, cut a pocket to hold this case in and then made some clamps that were low pro to keep it in, keep it in the right spot when I flipped it over. And yeah, it's a, it's a good way to go. Yeah, I'm probably going to try and make some of those out of aluminum. They won't work on other pieces of metal, but for wood and plastic, I think it'll be enough. Yeah. I've got some ideas for that on the Pocket NC, where I can do uh, machine it five axis and do sort of a mini pallet version of that. So hopefully I can knock out four to eight of these at a time. Should be fun. Yeah, that'd be cool. So we're coming up on the uh, 45 minute mark. I, I just wanted to ask Ed if you had any uh, final words of inspiration or motivation for our listeners, um, especially especially those out there that haven't really tried uh, CNC machining yet, but are giving it, uh, giving it some thought. You know, I, I don't know if I can say anything about like talking somebody into buying a CNC machine other than it's simultaneously easier and harder than you think it'll be. Like there's, I think that there's a common misconception that there's a huge learning curve, you know, to even get into it. When I think the fact is to just start the, it's it's really easy. Like you can be making, you know, little signs and coasters in no time. And then to sort of level up um, takes a little more effort. But it's worth it if you're into making stuff. And 
you know, you're looking for more precision or repeatability or just being able to do some things that you probably couldn't do by hand. Yeah. I think now that, you know, you've created a cut rocket, which is kind of nice, nice way to oh, get well, started yeah. when you get a machine, right? You've kind of got some canned projects ready to go made by other, other, uh, Shapeoko owners and nomad owners. I've been looking over that. I think last week I was in there looking for uh, still not a lot of nomad projects there yet. At least I'm not finding them, but tons of good shape yeah. stuff, including some yeah. of your, your projects are really good. Um, one, thanks for the plug. I had, uh, didn't even think to mention cut rocket, but yeah, that was like pretty much the whole idea behind it was, you know, people get these machines and sort of the way that I learn how to do things is this is how I learned every programming language. I know copy somebody else's program and then modify it. And then, you know, you end up sort of with your own thing after a while. Um, so yeah, all the projects on there are vetted. Like they have to have a finished picture of the project to prove that they made it. And it has to have a design file. So it's been pretty popular. I've been watching the analytics on it and the number of users, both project uploads, visitors, and project downloads has been slowly growing over the last couple of months. So I think we've got 125 projects posted right now and they're all, they're all pretty good. Yeah. I've noticed, I mean, a lot of them are carbide create projects, which uh, for those who don't know, carbide sells uh, some design software and uh, toolpath generation software with their products. That's, it's a little bit easier to learn than fusion. Um, not as full featured as fusion, but it's a great way to kind of, once you get your machine and you're ready to start a, your first project, it's, uh, it doesn't have the big barrier to learning that, that a full-blown CAD CAM package will, will have. So if you go to Cut Rocket, I think most of those are their Carbide Create projects ready to download and and send to the machine, right? If they wanted to or modify and send to the machine. Yeah, um, I think 75% of the projects are Carbide Create. And then the other 25 is a mix between Fusion and um, probably VCarve Pro would be the other one. Okay. So that's, yeah, so. that's definitely one of the things I liked about it. Um, cause for me, like when I first got into it, I was lucky cause I had already done some CAD cam work before, uh, from the 3d printing side. But if I had just plunked down some money for a nice machine and sitting in front of my screen for the first time going, how in the world do I make this thing move? How do I design something and get it up there? Uh, having something like carbide creator, you know, basically a very basic, uh, uh, shape design product would have been. That would have been very uh, soothing <laughs> to my anxiety, I think. So I, I have a quick story about that, actually. Um, when I was visiting my brother two weekends ago, he has a Shapeoko. He has a Shapeoko 3 standard size, and he's had it for about two years, and he's never used it. So before I came up, he was like, hey, if you're going to be here all weekend, you know, can you show me how to use the machine? Sure, I'd love to. So... <laughs> Basically, he, he, he works at Autodesk also. So he thought, well, I've got this machine. I'll use Fusion and draw my parts and, and do the toolpaths. By the time I got there, he was ready to throw his MacBook through the window. <laughs> <laughs> like trying to do this super complicated design in Fusion. And then he had the toolpath window open with all thousand options. You know, and he's like, I don't know what any of this stuff means, blah, blah, blah. I said, why don't you just, why don't you use Carbide Create? Let's make something easy. And then after you figure out how the machine works, you, the Fusion stuff will seem a little bit easier. Okay. 
Um, so anyway, he's cut like three or four projects on it out of create. And he just sent me a screenshot of this fusion project that I think he's going to cut tonight. Um, so yeah, creates a, a pretty good way to ease your, ease your way into it, figure out, you know, what does what on the machine. And then I feel like it's easier to learn something else because you have a reference point. Right. Yeah. I think, um, it's kind of a overpowering urge to get that first part out once you buy a machine like that. I mean, it, if not for yourself to prove to your wife that, Hey, I can do something useful with that <laughs> money I just spent. So, uh, yeah, anything that helps, uh, helps in that mission is, is, is good with me. So I help out a lot of folks. Uh, I think Winston does too. We get a lot of, uh, followers that reach out to us and say, Hey, you know, we want to get started and CNC is, uh, just got a machine, but they're kind of, they, they have a little bit of trouble getting over the fear that they're going to break the machine. And I always tell them, yeah, uh, you can do a lot of things. You can, you know, you can break some tools. You will break some tools. You might, you know, in the end, mar some stock and have to toss it out. Uh, your odds of actually damaging the machine are, are, are impossible. I mean, the only, the only occurrence I've ever heard of that happening with the hobby machine is Edward Ford himself who destroyed his first machine, I think, <laughs> but that was, uh, I mean, there are special circumstances behind that. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually tell people the same thing, Ed. Like, don't be afraid you're going to break the machine. I, I don't think that the machine can break itself. Um, if you look at how strong the steppers are and the belting, and then it's running into 10 gauge steel. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm assuming that the belt is going to break before anything. Um, so, yeah, just go for it. I mean, th yeah, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to screw up your material or break a bit. Yeah. And I think on these, you know, these class of machines, even if you did break something like a belt, it's all, you know, it's all stuff that's easy to repair. Um, you're yeah. not going to ruin your machine. I always hear that. Don't worry. You're not going to ruin your machine. So uh, I'm sure Winston's had to deal with that too. Um, actually I, I probably, when I got my first machine, I had that same fear and I started, you know, it took me a while before I was ready to throw metal in it. Um, although in the end I now, I know now that that doesn't really make a difference. You can crash regardless of what you're cutting, but yeah, the first time I accidentally drove an eighth inch end mill like through three quarter inch plywood and just the machine stalled but nothing exploded was uh, very reassuring. And after that point, pretty much nothing's phased me. I don't know if you guys have heard this story, but I so I have a an aluminum table on my personal small shape Oko. And I I still don't know what happened, but I had an eighth inch uh like R one oh two cutter in and I drew <laughs> I drove it all the way through the aluminum table, straight down. And a couple things amazed me. One, the bit didn't break. Two, it actually did a pretty, I mean, it was like 60 inches a minute or 30 inches a minute. Like it just went straight down. It actually made a pretty good looking hole. Did you thread it after, run the thread mill I should, I should, I should have threaded it after. Yeah, I think JPL might have seen a picture of it. I usually cover it up if I'm using that machine and I'm taking like an in-process photo there's like usually a wasteboard over top of it. But I think JPL saw it once and he still gives me shit about it. <laughs> I figured out if you thread it, no one ever asks if that was an oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, sh I should go back and thread it. Okay. Well, I really appreciate uh, getting you together on, uh, for this conversation. Uh, we're, we're actually out of time, but um, I know you're a busy guy, Ed. I really appreciate you appearing on the digital fabrication experiment tonight. Yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to come back anytime. All right, great. Well, have fun with your next your next podcast, the uh, serial podcaster you are.
Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I haven't been on my own podcast in three weeks, I think. So I've been getting all of these DMs on Instagram, I think starting like, well, starting Tuesday, whenever Mikey dropped the last episode. So I start getting these DMs and and they all say the same thing, like, come back to the podcast, we miss you, blah, (laughs) blah, blah. blah. It took me until like the 20th podcast or the 20th uh, DM when the guy said something like, Mikey sent me. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't listened to last week's show. So I texted Mike and I was like, man, I've like doubled my personal followers today. Thanks to you. <laughs> so yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back on the, on the, if you build it podcast. And I, I'm really happy you guys had me on tonight. I had a good time. Well, thank you. Ed. All right. Good night. All right. Good night. Have a good one.